on deck on Turn the Corner. The Athletics' Cody Stevenhagen and co-host Kieran Steckley discuss the ongoing youth movement with the Detroit Tigers, as well as preview the trade deadline and the MLB draft. And welcome into another episode of Turn the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me, per use, the man who carries a pen and he carries a sword, and they both are mighty, the Athletics, Cody Stavenhagen. Cody, how you doing, bud? Hey, I've, I've been better considering my car was uh, among the 1,000 vehicles stranded in the Metro Detroit flooding on uh, Friday night, so... Not an ideal circumstance, trying to get that worked out, but here we are, we're talking Tigers anyway. Yeah, overcoming a little adversity, you know, you're powering Something through. like that. We'll, we'll see We'll see if I get a new car out of this, that's, that's the big thing. Uh, everyone out there, be safe, we have some more rain expected this week. If you see a bunch of water, stop, turn around, don't think you can try to make it. Don't be like me, don't be stubborn, <laughs> stop, turn around. Yes, always uh, always a good PSA and an added benefit for the listeners of Turning the Corner. So, Cody, this week, it's all about the Utes for the Detroit Tigers. It seems like as I'm watching, uh, as I'm watching the games, as I'm listening to Dan, I'm just seeing young guy after young guy make play. Probably the most notable, or at least the most interesting, is we got a second start out of Matt Manning this week, and we talked extensively about his first career start against the Angels last week. He didn't get a whole lot of a break in terms of the amount of talent he had to face in the second go-round going up against the St. Louis Cardinals, who, I, as I think Dan Dickerson said, well, they have one of the most expensive first basemen, and then they went ahead and got one of the most expensive third basemen, both guys with uh, great bats and great fielding, but specifically to Manning, uh, moment not too big for him. Uh, part two for Matt Manning this week. Yeah, I think it was another interesting start to kind of break down because he showed a lot of poise. You wouldn't have guessed it was his second major league start. Um, he was able to work in and out of a little bit of trouble. I still was not a big fan of his stuff. It was arguably worse than his first outing. His fastball wasn't quite as lively. Um, he worked in a few more breaking pitches, but that curveball just still looked a little bit flat or he couldn't spot it very well. So those are things you want to see improve. Those are things that you like, you feel like he can't get by with, you know, for an extended period of time, basically just being a fastball pitcher in the majors. That said, we've now seen two starts where he didn't have his best stuff and he still finishes with a pretty good line. Uh, I think for a young kid, that's, that's kind of all you can ask for at the same time. Again, Look back at Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal's first two starts. Matt Manning, I think, had the worst stuff out of the, the three, but he has the best numbers. That's how baseball works sometimes. Uh, this is a talented pitcher. I'm sure he will continue to improve. It's going to be vital for him to lock in at least one of those secondary pitches. And over time, he needs to change up and the curveball going. So something to to keep an eye on there. But, but I wrote it this week. Like, this kind of marked the arrival of the Tigers pitching triumvirate. That doesn't mean that they're all here to dominate, you know, day in and day out, starting right now, although Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal have started to look really good. But we're here. Mize, Manning, and Skubal are all in the starting rotation. They're all in the big leagues. 
It was kind of the day we were dreaming about two years ago when they were all in double A, and now it's here. Like the time has come. You look across the rest of the diamond, the the young kids are here with some more guys and, and soon some bats on the way. So I think that makes this a pretty exciting time to watch this team. Yeah, and you got, you know, innings limits notwithstanding, you got three three out of five in the rotation that you're like you, know, you kind of want to see you kind of want to see what you know what what they're gonna do what the growth is are they gonna be able to figure something out uh we're recording this on saturday casey mize uh looks stellar for the second time against the houston astros and you you like seeing young guys rise to the okay to the occasion and and, and mize has certainly done that Scooble has has come around real well, real well, and and with Manning, like you know, we talked about before with you know he's a little bit more of a goofy guy, you know, like he like he doesn't necessarily have the demeanor of a of a of a Scooble or a Mize, but I was more impressed with anything, just like he felt in control, and again, it it bears repeating two starts, Angels. Cardinals those are real hitters in those lineups even if they're not completely healthy even if they're on a little bit of a bad stretch those are real dudes in those lineups first one on the road and then you know just like the emotion of you know pitching a home game for the first time that was the number one thing that stood out to me because he's only 23 years old and we know he has stuff how's the mental you know, going to come up, uh, develop as well in the major leagues. And I was heavily impressed with that. And, you know, reading your story, uh, I really liked the fact that he's got, he had an apartment this entire time in, uh, in downtown Detroit. Uh, one of my, uh, one of my favorite quotes, in fact, it's, uh, it's in my Twitter bio is from, uh, Dion Waiters who said, bet on yourself and double down. Sign a lease in a town of which you currently do not work in. That's the def, but you project that you will get there. That's like a signal of you getting to your your ultimate goal. Man, that's betting on yourself and double down and doubling down. If I ever saw anything, it is Casey Mize did the same thing last year. Even when he started at the alternate site, I would kind of assume someone in the organization hinted to Matt Manning, like, "Hey, you're probably going to end up in Detroit a little more than Toledo." So especially if you just want to live in Detroit rather than Toledo, like just go ahead and get the place if you don't mind a 45-minute commute or whatever. But it does. It shows some confidence. That's kind of a risky thing to do. And you do have to commute back and forth, uh, you know, early in the morning, late at night. You better have some conviction that you're going to get to the majors if you want to keep making that drive every day. I think it's probably tough for Matt Manning sometimes seeing Tarek, seeing Casey up in the big leagues while he wasn't there, while he was in Toledo, while he was making that commute, while he was struggling in AAA. Um, But now he's here, and yeah, he has not at all looked overwhelmed. I think it's rare to see young pitchers who get better as the game goes along. Those are, you know, that's something we like to say Justin Verlander does. Uh, Corey Kluber at his peak was really known for that. Matt Manning, especially in his second start, uh, as that game went on, he started to lock it in, whereas for the last couple innings, he, he was looking pretty good. And again, I'm going to continue to be critical of the pitch mix because it's it's not great. It's pretty concerning. Uh, but to get better as the game goes along, when you don't have that secondary stuff, I think that shows something. I think it shows maybe the fact that Manning is a little bit of a different personality. 
can be a good thing. He's probably not as likely to get up there and overthink as Casey Mize or maybe Tarek Skubal might be. He's he's a pretty confident guy, uh, and as you just pointed out, definitely has a lot of belief in himself. It seems like that has served him well so far. What's the biggest indication that he's not he doesn't have the, the secondary pitches there really working as they need to be. Cause I, I just look at, you know, the basic stats four strikeouts in more than 10 innings. Uh, that's not ideal, right? Especially as a guy that potentially has the stuff to garner several strikeouts. And I know you get the pitch counts and you know, what it, what actually requires of, you know, to get a strikeout, you know, that stuff can get a little bit more in the weeds of what I'm really getting at. What I'm getting at is, uh, this part isn't sustainable to go essentially, you know, two, you know, to go four strikeouts per ten innings is not necess- is not sustainable despite the good stuff of what we've seen. Yeah, that's something as if you're, you know, evaluating Manning as a player, it's pretty concerning. It's not really sustainable for guys to continue to post uh, low ERAs with strikeout rates that low. I don't have his, you know, his whiff rate in front of me, but he's just not generating many swings and misses. The Cardinals fouled off, you know, I think double digit pitches in that game. It seemed like all of them were two with two strikes. He just couldn't quite put batters away and that's going to get you in trouble. That's not something you can sustain. So again, the question becomes, you know, does he kind of regress? Do hitters catch up to that? Do they really start sitting more on fastballs, start taking them you know, he hasn't uh, he hasn't been a big victim of the long ball, even though that's what was killing him in AAA. So is he due to have a really bad start where he gives up some homers and struggles, or is he going to lock in one of those secondary pitches? Because if he does that, then then suddenly he's, uh, he's sitting pretty. Now, I think he needs three pitches. Again, you can't really be a two-pitch pitcher at this level either. Uh, the strikeout rate is concerning, but Matt Manning is also a good enough pitcher that eventually that strikeout rate is going to rise. I think he just has to lock a couple things in at the same time. He gave up that home run to uh, Nolan Arenado, and that was on a hanging slider, as I recall. The pitch was pretty – it wasn't a terrible pitch. He buried it low. It it just caught a little too much of the plate. It was one of those that – Nolan Arenado is one of the best players in the game. It wasn't a perfect pitch, but it it wasn't really a hanger. He made worse pitches than that. Okay, and the next time Nolan came up to bat, he pounded him with sliders. And yeah, uh, as, as, you know, I was talking about how cool and calm he was. I mean, that takes a certain amount of goal to uh, be victimized by a guy on a certain pitch, and then also have the confidence in that pitch still to throw it three straight times and and get get a you know an easy out. I mean, I, I think that was as impressive as anything. Yeah, kudos to Matt, and I think it was Jake behind the plate uh, for calling those. Clearly, that was their game plan with which to attack Arenado, and they didn't deviate from it, even though you know one of those breaking balls caught a little too much of the plate. That leads to another discussion. Uh, the TrackMan radar is picking up some of Matt Manning's breaking balls as sliders. They all kind of look like curveballs to me, but a radar, in theory, is going to pick up a slider because it has gyro spin. It's spinning like a bullet. So either that's just a really poor curveball or he is throwing a slider that just doesn't have very good shape to it. We haven't gotten a ton of clarity on that. Should probably ask Matt Manning before his next outing. Because um, that's been a little perplexing. They, they all kind of look like curveballs to me. And uh, as I alluded to, Casey Mize, 
a nice outing in the 3-1 win of the first game of the Saturday's doubleheader. Six innings, uh, six hits, one earned run, five strikeouts, two walks. Uh, the six innings obviously being the key in a seven-inning game with two games on the dock. Uh Really impressed with his ability to kind of get out of jams there in the first inning. We we talked about previously with Casey Mize how we are elevating the conversation with him. Uh, not that it really means all that much in the grand scheme of things, unfortunately, for someone else that is on the Tigers roster. But are we looking at a potential Rookie of the Year candidate here? He's, he's got his name in the mix. Uh, I think he's putting himself in the mix for an all-star appearance. You know, I don't know if that'll happen, but... He's in the discussion. Unfortunately, there are some rookie hitters in the American League who are also tearing it up, so might as well have to really continue at this pace to actually win that award. And if he faces an innings limit that, uh, you know, he's only going three innings most of the second half of the season, I'd be surprised to see him win Rookie of the Year. But he's still going to have a very strong rookie season. He'll be mentioned in that discussion. He'll probably receive... Uh, some votes. I thought, you know, in his latest outing, it was really good to kind of see the return of the splitter. That was the one thing that could take Mize to an even higher level. He had really gone away from it, which was a little puzzling. Well, he brought it back Saturday, and it was a little bit more of that diving swing and miss slider that that he was so well known for at Auburn, and uh, it didn't look like it diminished the life on his other pitches at all. So I was encouraged to see the splitter. Still don't have a ton of clarity on why he went away from it. I think maybe he just temporarily lost the feel for the pitch, uh, but it was back Saturday and it looked really good. I think that's that's great news for Casey Mize. Unfortunately, uh, the days of seeing Mize go six and seven innings are probably um, short-lived. We're going to see the Tigers dial back his innings probably here in the month of July, and, and we'll see what happens after that. Which, and one last thing about Manning, I had this thought. Uh, thank God for Matt Manning because with the amount of injuries on this staff and the amount of uh, shaky bullpen play that we've seen uh, to have a prospect come up, which, as we've previously stated, probably was not ready. He definitely was not in the ideal groove to come up to the major leagues. Now, all that's all that's water on the bridge now that he's looked, uh, looked fine in, in, in two starts, but... I mean, without Matt Manning, I mean, Tigers be on dire straits trying to get dudes who can get some innings or even start a game. And, you know, with Mize and Scooble facing some limitations, uh, you know, it could get even worse. Uh, so Matt Manning coming up in, in a way has been a little bit of a godsend. Just generally speaking, what do you what have you made of how the, the Tigers front office and A.J. Hinch have sort of navigated some you know pretty serious arm injuries or injuries to arms I should say um whether it's the creativity of a bullpen day or uh you know use of relief guys and and trying to save guys for these situations I mean it's a hard thing to do given the situation they've been placed in it didn't start out well against Houston with Urania so you know maybe the rain kind of helped the Tigers there a little bit postponing Friday night's game to a doubleheader on Saturday. So what do you make of the way they've kind of navigated those waters? Yeah, we're, we're recording this in between game one and game two on Saturday. We'll see what happens here in game two, but it might be a huge blessing that the Tigers played two seven inning games 
uh, with one of them. I think they really needed a good start from Casey Mize to save that bullpen. I think that's why he was bumped up to start game one. We'll see what happens with Willie Peralta in game two. The situation as a whole, it's it's tough to um, analyze because everyone's hands are kind of tied here. When you have injuries to Boyd and Turnbull and you have a combination of injuries and fluctuating performance in the bullpen, there's not a ton you can do. We've talked about this a little bit before, but the Tigers have also been uh, kind of hamstrung by the fact that Alex Fiedo and Joey Wentz are on their 40-man roster, guys who weren't healthy. Wentz is now back in, in A and on the comeback trail, if he pitches well enough, we might see him in the majors by the end of the year. He'll have to he'll have to earn that in the minors, obviously, coming back from Tommy John. But they're basically operating with a 38-man, 40-man roster. That's why Matt Manning got the promotion. They just didn't have anyone else. Um, there have been some names, Drew Hutchison and AAA, who maybe could work his way up here if, if you know they want to DFA someone else off the roster. I've inquired, like, would they consider going outside the organization? And the answer I kind of got was... Well, who are we going to get? You know, Rick Porcello's out there, but Rick Porcello still wants a few million dollars. The Tigers aren't going to give him that. With all the other injuries across the league, there are a lot of teams dealing with this. There are not a ton of options. Um, so I don't, like, it's hard to even be critical of Alavila here because what do you actually want him to do? When you have this many guys hurt, it puts you in a tough spot. Uh, Jose Urania, like you mentioned, he's really struggled his last three outings. You know, could have moved to the bullpen or something be good for him. I'm starting to think so, but you don't really have anyone to replace him in that rotation right now. So I think, you know, the goal for AJ Hinch has been get to the all-star break. And that's going to require some more patchwork, probably some more bullpen days, maybe a couple more rough Jose Urania starts. But then get to the all-star break, then get Boyd and Turnbull back. Uh, then suddenly you're looking a lot better. Then it comes down to, are you going to trade a pitcher at the deadline, which, which could cause, you know, even further complications. Uh, but it's a tough situation. I'm glad I'm not the one who has to make those decisions. You know, speaking of the trade deadline, I almost, I mean, unless something changes and, and there is, you know, some time before the deadline comes up, unless something changes, I almost anticipate you're not moving those two arms because your return, like people, like teams as of right now, if they were to trade for a Turnbull or a Boyd, are essentially trying to get a shortened stock. Like they're trying to get someone whose talent could be here and the price is here because of injury or, you know, maybe play not up to potential. Uh, Al has talked about that this season, they're not in pure sell mood. Uh, excuse me, sell mode. Uh, but unless they come back shortly after the All Star break and then decide and pitch really, really well, I almost anticipate Al just getting low ball offer after low ball offer after low ball offer. And at that point, is it even worth it to move him? Uh, you know, either one of those guys, but especially Turnbull, when you talk about his uh, his team control and the potential that we've seen this year with the no-hitter, I mean, I, 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 get, I said, this could change, but I'm almost thinking that the trade deadline decision with those arms is more or less been to, been made for Al with those guys because they've been injured and because it, it's hard at this point to imagine getting a maximized return for them. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think, unfortunately, uh, we're probably getting set up for a pretty anticlimactic trade deadline, at least from the Tigers' standpoint. Now, a lot could change. You know, one contender has an injury, and then suddenly the entire trade market could change. So we'll see what happens as we move along here. But I think you're right. I think you have to get a really good return to move Turnbull. And especially with him coming off the IL, I don't think you're going to get that. Boyd, we know what Boyd is. You know, the Tigers have not gotten great offers for him in the past. They're not going to get him now, especially with him coming off an injury. You know, we've talked about Jamer Candelario. Well, do you really want to trade a bat that's been performing pretty well? You know, Jonathan Scope has really been raising his trade stock, but he's a one-year rental. Like, do you want to trade Jonathan Scope for some double-A reliever? Like, I guess you could, but I don't think you're getting a, a bang-up return there either. The idea of extending Scope is now starting to be a conversation. I was actually in favor of that last year, but uh, Scope's probably going to be the player of the month here in June. I'm sure he won't, you know, play at this MVP-type level the rest of the season, but he's putting himself on a track to have a three, three-and-a-half win season minimum for a guy who's primarily a second baseman. He could be t pricing himself out of the Tigers' range. But again, if your goal is to acquire productive hitters, well, you kind of have one. Uh, why would you trade them unless you just really are in that sell mode, you're trying to get value? So again, I think Alavila is going to get a lot of criticism for this, and it's tough. I think it's a fact that Al doesn't have the best feel on the trade market. He's not the most creative uh, GM when it comes to trades. But sometimes the, uh, you know, kind of the quote-unquote excuses that the market's just not good, well, sometimes there's there's been something to that. Um, you know, if you want to go back and, and do all the revisionist history, yeah, maybe they should have extended Nick Castellanos. Maybe they should have pumped even more money at J.D. Martinez or something like that. But in terms of the trade market itself, it's tough. And this year, unless the Tigers really get creative or another team really gets desperate, I'm having a hard time foreseeing uh, any sort of, of noteworthy trade. Maybe a bullpen guy might be the most likely to get dealt at this point. Well, so when I try to think big picture here, I keep coming back to one phrase, and that's like like Al and AJ need to ask themselves and and David Chad and all these people, what are we trying to accomplish here? Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? So, Candelario, in my opinion, unless you just get, like, something awesome and, and someone cold calls you with something awesome, I, I don't ha I'm I am giving zero headspace to trading Candelario at this point. As you said, he's a productive hitter. I think it's well established that he's an average third baseman, which... You can live with average third base, you know, at, at that position, and he's a guy that's kind of been in the organization. Seems like his teammates like him. You, he's not necessarily homegrown, but he was like a middling major leaguer when you got him, and now he looks like you know, nice major league player. That's that's a little bit of a win. That's that'd be one of the trades that Al can definitely check in a uh, in in a win column for. With scope, as you said, like what are you really gonna get for him? Uh, you know, a double-A reliever, is there some value there? Sure. But, again, what are you trying to accomplish? Do you want to establish uh, a, com you know, you know, a competitive team? And I, when I say competitive, I'm not necessarily talking about the flat win-loss record. I'm talking about, like, having guys out there that bring it every day. 
Jonathan Scope brings it every day. AJ likes the fact that he can put Jonathan Scope in the lineup, and he knows that Scope's going to bring it every day. And, you know, there's some benefit to the versatility of the second base, first base thing. That's cool. It's, it's not a big deal, but it's a thing. So, again... What are we trying to accomplish here? That that that's that should be printed in the front office uh, for the Detroit Tigers. What are we trying to accomplish here? Are we going to sell short on Turnbull and Boyd? What is that going to do? What are we trying to accomplish here? So, y- you said boring. I, I I don't really see any other choice. Barring you just get floored by something because you, you these are productive players. Number one, and, and number two. There's value beyond what they're doing on the field uh, for like all these young guys that we have talked about that we're going to continue to talk about. Uh, it, it just seems to me that as of right now, there's still a net positive. And even if Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Scope leaves in free agency, uh, you know, good. You got two years out of him, cheap, you know, cheap contracts. And I think he's been a fine model citizen model ball player for these young dudes i get the notion of like we got log jams at certain positions and we got to get people to play you know these young guys i get that but at the same time his versatility allows you to still do that you know to a certain extent so you know just like with the pitchers with jonathan you know as hot as he is like if you can get floored with a deal that's really gonna make you better like i get that but i'm just unless i'm presented with something else there's it's hard for me to envision that being like a clear-cut win uh for the team uh not to mention the fact that look this guy we criticize that all the time so i always kind of feel the need to either defend him or like point out some good that that has occurred under his tenure Dude's been a nice signing twice. He can't, you know, he signed with the team and he came back. And like, he's using the Tigers as a vehicle for. He's only 29. Like, he's using the Tigers as a vehicle to get probably his last, you know, big contract. Be like too strong of a word, but his last, you know, real money making opportunity. And that's cool for the state of the Tigers right now, man. That's awesome. That's that's what players uh, ought to be looking at the Tigers right now for probably next season and after that if they're still doing that then uh some things have gone wrong but he served his purpose with the team and the team has served him well i just don't think you have to end that relationship just because so that that's my long spew it looks like in my opinion i'm just anticipating not really getting anything that you're going to want at the deadline and i anticipate it being boring but as we record here in late june a lot of things can change. Yeah, I, I think if you want to go back to uh, what the people like, which is sometimes uh, criticizing the Tigers' um, front office decisions, it's time to start really talking about Nomar Mazzara. Um, I don't think it was a terrible signing in that this was a guy with some upside, a lot of pop. A.J. Hinge had seen him play in Texas where, where he had tremendous pop. But there was a point in free agency where it seemed like the Tigers were done uh giving out major league deals. They went ahead and got Mazzara anyway. Uh, it was a minor surprise. They had Daz Cameron, even Kristen Stewart. They didn't necessarily need Mazzara, but they went out and got him. They paid him. Now they're 
kind of obligated to give him opportunities in the order, and he's hitting in the low 200s with pretty much no pop. He's not pulled the ball like uh, like I think he was aiming to entering this year. And with the rise of Daz Cameron, with Derek Hill now uh, back on a rehab assignment, potentially coming back to the majors soon, wondering if Nomar Mazzara might be on borrowed time here. And then when you really look at, okay, Mazzara, Urania, Wilson Ramos, you can see some more sunken assets that the Tigers acquired this offseason. They did spend a little payroll money on signings that didn't work out. Now, granted, Robbie Grossman has been terrific, and Jonathan Scope has been terrific. Can't say the same for some of these other acquisitions, and I I definitely wonder um, what the future is going to hold here for Mazzara. That's another thing we've seen under A.J. Hinch, and the front office has a say in it, too. So that... Kind of ready to move on from some of these guys, especially when younger dudes like Adas Cameron are playing pretty well. And and by the way, like that's fine. Like it's fine to throw a couple million bucks at a Nomar yeah. Mazzara and and see if if you can buy low and and you know the gamble pays off. Or even a Wilson Ramos, where like there Wilson Ramos wasn't disappointing per se. He was exactly who we thought he was. So like. You're really more. You really more like cut him, unconditional release him because of what's happening behind him with with Haas and Rogers. So like even that is like a positive sunken cost. If that's if that's a statement that makes any sense, but it's but <laughs> you more or less you more or less showed him the door because younger guys that maybe you weren't sure about or didn't anticipate end up being nice major leaguers who give you more upside and are worthy of playing time with Mazzara that like it was a fine enough gamble like I I I think it was exactly sort of like with the scope thing but a little bit different because scope had more of a productive track record but with Mazzara you throw I mean the Lions are doing this with several players as they're doing their rebuild the the Pistons did it like you you throw some cheap one-year contracts at guys who have shown talent and then Give them a chance to maybe change the scenery, or maybe this, or maybe that. Maybe under this, our coaching, he can do that. Blah blah blah, and see if they can cut it. And if they ain't, if they can't cut it, you know, it's a low risk, high reward move. Looks like Mazzara can't cut it. It's really weird for me to see a power left-hander, which is like what he is at his best, a power left-hander who can't or won't pull the ball. Like it's it's a very strange thing. He hasn't really impressed me at all this year, but I've been of the mind of like, well, give him a certain amount of at bats because you're paying him this money, and you're, uh, you know, the upside is high enough to, and and the age is low enough to see it through. At this point, I'm a I'm about through. I'm about through. I think I've seen enough. That's fine. Daz Cameron looks like. Looks like completely different from struggling the minors two years ago and really just kind of being a space filler last year with the weird year that everything went on and he was recovering from COVID and like all these things. It's a very weird year for everybody, Daz Cameron especially. Slow start to begin this year. He has the arm injury. I mean, uh, Derek Hill, we've talked about Derek Hill and of course, you know, my love of Derek Hill and like. I'm not giving a second thought to giving Daz Cameron and Derek Hill playing time over Nomar Mazzara. Uh, those guys are fully capable of hitting 210. Yeah, you know, like yeah. It, it, sometimes it's that simple. It's like if if, if 
I got to see what these guys can do. Nomar, thanks for your service. We appreciate it. But, like, you're also not offering really anything on defense. So, so you know, we, we know we're upgrading defensively if we put Daz Cameron or Derek Hill in right field. And which, by the way, I love the idea of seeing a Badu, Hill, Cameron outfield alignment. I mean, talk about, uh, talk about no extra base city over there at Comerica Park. I mean, they'll, they'll track down any ball. Daz Cameron had a really nice catch today uh in center field and we're seeing that he still has that everyday center fielder potential which were we sure about that last year i'm not 100 percent sure we were but now i would 100 percent say he has potential to be an everyday center fielder not that he will potential he's only 24 Derek hill 25 look at all these young guys mize 24 scoobal 24 rogers 26 on the old end candelario's 27 that's kind of like the fringe of whether you're a young guy or not uh nomar i believe uh 26 but we've seen it he's been in the big leagues long enough all right let's move on to the next guy and so like um i'm really thinking positively about all these young guys because another kind of thing that i tell myself is sometimes you need to reset expectations so if you pull Daz Cameron away from the return of the Justin Verlander trade and you just look at him as a 24-year-old who's got a solid bat potential, great feeling potential, and you're just kind of and a lineage in Major League Baseball, you're like, "All right, let me see what this guy can do." Derek Hill, you take out the fact that he was a high school first-round draft pick and just a guy that's been injured but has shown has a great glove potential and has steadily shown more pop in the bat if he could stay healthy it reshapes what you think what you think of these guys if you take out sort of the heightened expectations of when you were initially and when they were initially brought to you right same thing with jake rogers jake rogers who by the way might be the small ball king of the Detroit Tigers. I know how much you love Bunce, Cody, so you can elaborate on that a little bit later. Akil Badu. Akil Badu. Reset expectations. And and this was in your your Badu story from the other day, which, by the way, available on The Athletic. If you subscribe, you can read all this and all content from The Athletic. Akil Badu. AJ Hinch said he is no longer the Rule 5 draft pick. We have graduated, in my mind, graduated Akil Badu from, who, by the way, 22 years old, graduated Kilpadu from Rule 5 draft pick, neat story, neat, pro- like, we're seeing what you can do now. I mean, he's in the second half of the doubleheader on Saturday, he's batting leadoff. He batted leadoff earlier this week. I was like, God, it's crazy when they just, you know, spring training, it's like, oh, you know, this is not sustainable. This is where, like, the guy is balling, man. Like, he's balling, and I'm not over-exaggerating. Like, he's playing good. He's playing well. And in your story, what is it? Chris Bryant, Juan Soto have small, uh, lower uh, OPSs than him? Akil Badu has a higher OPS than Juan Soto and Chris Bryant and, uh, you know, several other big names. Uh, now it helps that Badu doesn't really hit much against lefties, but he's doing his job and he's doing it really well. Yeah, and he's 1,000% warranted more playing time. Now, you know, he learns to hit the cutoff, man. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be in a little bit of, of a better spot, but, like, 
these are got Daz and especially Badu are forcing AJ Hinch to put him in the lineup. And I and I do like how he is strategic about where and when he puts him in there. He, does, he gives him, and this is, I'm almost directly quoting your story, gives them an opportunity. He challenges them, but doesn't overwhelm them with with the challenges. And I think that's a master stroke in managing. And so, you know, Willie Castro even, who's been more low than high this year, he's only 24. Paredes is, what, 22. Uh, this is, like I said at the beginning, this is the youth movement of the Tigers. And, you know, it gets me to a television as someone who follows this really closely and isn't emotionally invested in, in these guys doing well. So, uh, you know, no Marmazara, like, you know, guys like that, you know, Wilson Ramos, we've already seen. It's like, look, dude, if you can't cut it, if you're going to be anywhere close, like, you're not, you don't just automatically get a lineup spot. Jacoby Jones, man, that had some fond memories watching Jacoby Jones play. You know, it ain't 2017 anymore, man. Like, like it's, o- it's over in terms of you getting that benefit of the doubt. We're going to let these young guys go. And so, like, I'm... I'm really excited to see all these young guys. I mean, I, like, you know, with Akil Badu specifically, you know, the weird thing about baseball is there are so many numbers out there that you can make a judgment that is irrational based on one or two numbers. So, like, no one here is going to suggest that Akil Badu is better than Juan Soto, mm-hmm. who is freaking awesome, or even, or obviously Chris Bryant, all this stuff. So, what is Akil Badu in your mind? I, as I as I said, I'm no longer thinking of him as the Rule Five guy, but you know, we thought he should be in Double A. No, he looks like a major league player now. I mean, like, so, like, what, what do, what? You shift through the numbers. What does it actually mean? What is Akil Badu? Who is Akil Badu right now? <laughs> Right now, he has he has uh, he's tied with Jonathan Scope for the highest wins above replacement on the Tigers. So he's the best player on your team if you go by that. Um, I think expectations. You talked about that earlier. That's important to keep in perspective when we're kind of hyping these guys up right now. Like Daz Cameron is doing very well. Kilbadu is doing very well. Derek Hill has the ability to do very well. That doesn't mean that we're talking about future Hall of Famers or All Stars, but we're talking about guys who can be productive, big leaguers. I'm not sure any of those three guys are really the marquee pieces that the Tigers need to get back to the playoffs, but they're showing they do have the ability to be uh, kind of the supporting cast that that usually ultimately separates uh, good teams from great ones as we, as we look down the road. But do, you know, man, he's dynamic. He has some pop in the bat. His plate approach is really good. His defense concerns me. His arm is not that much better than Kristen Stewart's arm. And A.J. Hinch has been protective and not exposing him against left-handed pitching much. Starting to do that a little more. That's probably the next step of Badu's challenge. If you're going to be an everyday, everyday player, you have to be able to hit left-handed pitching. So he could be, you know, uh, a really good platoon guy who's able to play most days against righties. And if you compliment him, in another year or two with a power right-handed bat, that could be a pretty good combo in your outfield. Um, so again, I think Badu continues to blow away all expectations. I had a hard time believing in him in, in spring training. You know, thought he was due to come back down to earth while well, he just kept performing. Obviously had a sensational start. 
And then the most remarkable thing is that he went through a massive slump. He was like one for 30. He struck out 29 times, I think 55 at bats. And he corrected it, and he's not been overwhelmed by spin. He's a, he's made some adjustments at the plate. Uh, he continues to play well. He's really dynamic. He moves well in the bases. So, yeah, he's a big leaguer right now. He's a productive big leaguer. He's a guy who's going to keep getting better. Um, I think there are probably a certain, you know, there's a certain ceiling on just how good he could really be, but he's looking like a piece who can help your team. And that's quite a find to get that in the Rule 5 draft. Uh, I, I'm more encouraged with Akil Badu's skill set than I ever was. Uh, Victor Reyes, Badu, Badu's legit. He can do a lot of things well. He has a little pop, and he has a good plate approach. That's a that's a good package to start with. And, and Victor Reyes, like, kind of falls in the middle of those, like, two categories of guys I was just talking about yeah. where, like, I can live with him getting, like, you know, a little bit more major league time. As of right now, if I'm being a prisoner of the moment, I'm not doing it at the expense of Daz Cameron. You know, and if I had to choose, and of course I could be biased, I'm going with Derek Hill over him. You know, Derek and Hill has more tools. Derek Hill has more tools, and like you know, Victor's had more time, so like I like I can live with seeing that play out a little bit more. And and he's gonna be back, and he's gonna get his opportunities just because. Still a long season ahead. Someone's going to get hurt, unfortunately. And, and and he's worth another shot, but he's not worth... In my opinion, I don't know if I'd really go out of my way to give him an extended look. So that, that's kind of my, my Victor Reyes thing. And with, with Badu, I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, if I worked in the marketing department of the Detroit Tigers, I am sitting in on every... Uh, every phone call or whatever lineup decision discussion whatever because i want that dude in the lineup as much as possible because he is fun first of all his name is awesome right he's got a great name his style is great with the the helmet that always comes off whenever he runs where he tries to and he, this is thing where he tries to keep it on and then he just like eventually decides eh, f it like I, i'm just gonna let this thing fly and he's aggressive on the base pass. He takes these huge leads off first. That's something, you know, occasionally gets picked off. That's fine. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hold that against him because that's, you know, sort of like part of the whole process. And and, and he can track down some balls in the outfield. I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a marketing uh, person for the Tigers, I am uh, doing everything in my power to try to get this guy in the lineup as soon as po- as much as possible because he, he, he is – as fun a watch as anybody on the team. I would love a marketing employee to march into AJ Hinge's office and say, "Why isn't Akil Badu in the lineup?" Just to see how AJ would react to that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. I would. I would pay to to get the uh, get the cam footage uh, of that. Um, no, it's a, a little bit of a stretch, but no, this guy is highly marketable, highly entertaining. We've already starting to see a lot of Badu jerseys. Out at Comerica Park, likable guy. Um, great story, great story, terrific story. So, yeah, it's been fun. It's been amazing to follow. It's almost, I think, we're almost starting to take it for granted that a Rule Five pick is is being this productive in the majors at at age twenty two, after never seeing pitching above Class A, after basically not playing baseball for two years. Hell of a story. Yeah, and honestly, I also kind of like that that he wears number sixty. I, I know that was in your story that that was his spring training number. And since he like made the team is like, you know, I'm not going to change it. Uh, if he's 
you know, on the team for X amount of time, like, you know, moving forward next couple of years, I hope he never changes it. I think it's just like, it's like so unique. And again, the name Akil Badu is like a unique, trust me, as someone who has a unique name, that's a unique name. So like a unique name, unique number, fun style. I mean, it's all great. So uh, again, a little bit of a, you know, not a little bit, definitely a, a positive, a win column check for for the front office on identifying him as a guy who could, you know, translate to uh, to being successful in the major leagues. And if you gave them all true serum in, in uh, that front office, I think they would all uh, say that he has exceeded their expectations. So we talk about young guys. We talk about the future. We're not too far away from the Major League Baseball draft. Uh, we don't have to talk too much about it because I, I want to go in depth uh, next week as as we approach. But uh, your boy Keith Law over at the Athletic had a mock draft on Thursday, and he had uh, Meyer Mayer. We still do we have a actual pronunciation yet? Hitting it rhymes with tire, which would be Meyer. I Meyer. Okay. Not done independent confirmation on that, but I'm now back to going with Meyer for the okay. time. Okay. So, uh, Marcelo Meyer uh, going number one to the Pirates. Jordan Lawler number two. So that's two prep shortstops. Number two to the uh, Texas Rangers, which uh, you you've talked about before. I my first gut instinct is that it seems sort of Lazy is not the right word, but almost like too easy to put Lawler number two to the Rangers because of the local thing. And you've been on, you've been on record several times as saying that that is essentially meaningless when it comes to the Texas Rangers, which maybe it should be. You shouldn't just, you know, draft a guy because he's nearby. And they had Jack Leiter to the, or excuse me, Keith Law had Jack Leiter to the Tigers at number three. Keith Law says that the Tigers covet. Meyer, I, they were probably one of the first teams to uh, to come out really strongly and and uh, openly with their love of him. They were the first team leaked again. This is from Keith Law. It's available on the Athletic. If you subscribe to read Cody's stories, you can also read this one. Uh, first team linked to Jackson Job, the Oklahoma City prep pitcher. But according to Keith Law, the Tigers are heavy um, in Omaha for the college world series so it seems like he's trying he's basically going with the notion of they're there looking at the vanderbilt boys rocker and lighter uh lighter routinely has kind of been uh ranked higher than rocker this season i think coming in rocker was 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 a little bit of an edge uh but this but this season lighter has been uh consistently mocked higher than rocker uh i feel better uh, about that pick than i would job but again that's unfair to job i just you know the, the thought of a pitcher kind of scares me a little bit forever it's worth henry davis goes number four to the red sox and colton kouser colton kouser an outfielder from sam houston state down here in uh in in the southern portion of texas that's the first time i've seen uh someone uh that name that high and and i i don't i haven't i don't pretend to study the draft heavily in depth uh so that was a little bit of a surprise but uh keith law jack Leiter. i mean we, we talked earlier there's like jack Leiter's one one and it, it's increasingly looking like he's going to be available 
that'd probably be the pick that the Tigers were to take him that would be universally received as the most popular pick. That doesn't necessarily make it the right one, but would I think a lot of people would be happy with Jack Leiter at three, especially when we, we all think he's number one capable. Yeah, things change. All right, about a month ago, it really looked like it was Meyer versus Rocker. Like, maybe that's what the Tigers were really narrowing in on. I think it's changed to where now the Tigers scouting department is really looking at, okay, Job or Leiter. And now this could change. We'll see what the teams in front of them do. I'm not convinced the Rangers are going to take Lawler. So what does that mean if, uh, you know, if they don't take Jordan Lawler? Tigers like Brady House a lot, too. Uh, I think he and he did a workout down in Florida in front of some of the Tigers front office. But I get a strong sense it's it's looking at Job versus Leiter with some of the decision makers really liking Jackson Job. Man, I think we've talked about this before. If you're going to take a prep arm over Jack Leiter, who is going to be in the big leagues in two years, and at least personally, I like better than Casey Mize at Auburn. Uh, you you better be sure. You better be sure that Jackson Job is the next Verlander. I think that's incredibly risky. If Leiter weren't in the conversation, maybe it would be a little bit different. But to take him over Leiter... Uh, I don't know. That that's that's just a huge gamble. I think the Tigers draft history suggests they could go uh, with more of the high floor college guy, which would be Jack Leiter. But I think there's still some debates going on in that Tigers draft room. Perhaps why they have such a large presence in Oma, in Omaha. They're trying to dot every I and then uh, cross every T with Jack Leiter before it comes down to decision time. General philosophy thing for you. So. I'm not asking you to sort of give me any insight. I'm asking you to sort of put your cards on the table of, of, of how you would approach it. So Henry Davis is there, and we know the potential of Henry Davis. You got Dylan Dingler, like, rising fast uh, through the minor league system. Still, you know, I, I know it's a limited scope, but 379, 424, 655 uh, in double A right now. It seems like every night there's a highlight of him picking somebody off or throwing someone out uh, trying to steal. Uh, the, the guy looks like a high-ceiling uh, catching prospect right now. And again, he's excelling at double-A, whereas before when we would talk about it, this is what he was doing at high-A. So, you know, the conversation changes a little bit. How much do you have to take into consideration what Dingler's doing if you have a top-notch catching prospect available to you in Henry Davis at number three because one of the things I think excuse me one of the things I think is there's there's too many things that can happen that like baseball is 1000% asset accumulation and you sort of take the best assets and then you figure it out from there but it's a better problem to have than not having enough talented guys so part of me thinks like they should still be given a heavy look to to Henry Davis. But like for you, what do you sort of how do you sort of juggle we got you know, we got this guy in double A who looks really, really hot, and he, plus you got a couple dudes in the majors who are young and promising. Like how much did that factor in? How much would it factor in for you if you're staring at Henry Davis available at number three? Yeah, I don't think it would factor in a ton for me. It's cliched to talk about taking the best player available, but especially if you're talking to 
you know, drafting in the top five and you have a chance to get a premium guy, I just don't think you can worry about position too much. That's why I'm all for taking a pitcher right here because I think the best player available to the Tigers at three might just end up being a pitcher. Um, I don't know. I, re I really like Henry Davis. Sometimes I wonder if he's the best player in this class and is going to be an all-star catcher, in which case, why would you not draft him? If you have two really good catchers, worse problems to have. Also, these things sort themselves out. Players develop at different rates. Um, Dylan Dingler's tearing it up right now, has absolutely made himself look like the catcher of the future, but we'll see what happens the rest of the summer in AA. We'll see what happens in AAA. We'll see can he hit in the big leagues. A lot left to learn about Dingler. I will say I'm getting the sense that the Tigers are not very interested in Henry Davis. I could be wrong, but uh, I get the sense they really do not have faith in his defense. They're not sure if he is even a catcher, and that's a common I think there are other teams who feel that way. So if he's not a catcher, suddenly his bat is not as valuable. Um, I also get the sense that the Tigers have pretty much concluded Kumar Rocker is not going to be their guy. Hurts my heart. I love Kumar Rocker, <laughs> but I don't think they see him as a reliable front-end starter. Again, especially they have him below lighter, and I think they would probably take uh, Jackson Jove over Kumar Rocker pretty easily. I think that's kind of the conclusion they've reached. Again, this could change. They're probably, it's not like the Tigers front office operates as one conglomerate where everyone has the same opinion. Like they're going to be scouts and analysts and executives who think different things about these guys. But that's kind of the general sense that I've been getting how the Tigers view some of these players recently. And nor should they all think the same way. Uh, you, yeah. you, you need to have a diversity of opinions in the front office when it comes to, uh, drafting this guy should we draft that guy i like this you know like you you need you need that's how you get better that's how that's how you come to a more well-informed opinion so so now we come to the part of the podcast that i think cody has a love-hate relationship with because we're going to talk a little nba but we're going to talk about a guy who played basketball at oklahoma state which as you guys know is our alma mater so the pistons won the draft lottery the first time that they had advanced on their own pick in the history of the lottery they will be picking number one they have not picked number one since they took bob lanier if you guys listened to last week's episode when i talked to my dad he grew up in franklin michigan neighbors with al Kaline, another resident of franklin as he was growing up was bob lanier so Nice little coincidence there. So the Pistons get to pick number one overall. The assumption is that they will take Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State, who was the number one recruit last year, goes to Oklahoma State, has a phenomenal season, and uh, is the presumptive number one overall pick. James Edwards, your colleague Cody at The Athletic, has uh, cautioned the Cade hype a little bit, saying that they're going to do the the, the Pistons are going to do their due diligence, which they should, and they also like the one of the G League kids, uh, Jalen Green. Uh, I'm a little bit too emotionally invested to. Uh, I would I think Green could be a really good player, but I'm very biased, and I think Cade Cunningham is the guy for the Pistons. So since uh, Cody and I watch Cade play his entire freshman season at Oklahoma State, I thought it'd be nice if we kind of gave our little scouting reports of Cade Cunningham. So I'll, I'll start out 
there's not a level of half-court basketball that Cade can't score at. So he was not known as a shooter in high school and actually surprised scouts a lot with how well he shot the three at Oklahoma State at about a 40% clip and it, and and was not uh, on a shortage of attempts either. He shot the three a pretty good amount and he made, like I said, around 40% of them. He's really crafty. He's not overly athletic, but he but he finds his shot, he finds his space, and at 6'8", I don't know what his exact arm length is, but I'm just going to wager that he you know, has good length for his size. Not like a Kevin Willis. Shout out to the old school Michigan State basketball fans for that reference. Yeah, I'm assuming he doesn't have short arms, not T-Rex out there. So he can get his shot in the mid-range easily, even if he can't get by. And he's also explosive enough to finish strong at the rim. And again, 6'8", really helps that. He always plays under control. Uh, he has a steady heart rate. You can tell like he never gets high, never gets low. Sometimes it's a little frustrating when so, it, it comes across as maybe like lackadaisical in certain instances, but the more you watch him, you more you see that that's just like his personality. That's how he plays. He That's also why he's able to... Uh, come up clutch so many times, which he did, and he bailed Oklahoma State out many a time last year because I, I, I push back on, like, he was playing with towel boys. Like, Oklahoma State has some nice players, but they didn't really have knockdown shooters, and he was about as big as their starting post. So, like, you know, there's a middle ground between he played with nobody and you know, he obviously wasn't playing with the talent of a Kentucky or a Duke or a Michigan State. Uh, but anyway, so uh, the turnover thing is something that's being brought up against him. Yes, he does turn the ball over more than you'd like. To that, I say I don't think he's a natural point guard. I think he has guard skills, but that is something that he is still forming. So the turnovers... He's six foot eight. He hasn't really mastered the art of uh, the deep dribble to where like he can keep the ball low. That like that his size dictates that like he dribbles the ball high sometimes, and that's going to get picked. The Big Twelve is a quality basketball conference. I would definitely say top three. Uh, so you know, there's good teams in the Big Twelve and good defenses in the Big Twelve. So like. That's, I think, is what I attribute his uh, turnovers to. He is a good passer, so sometimes you think, you know, turnover prone, that's a bad pass. No, he is a good passer. He sees the floor really well. Again, six foot eight, and he's not afraid to sort of wait, 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 and then as soon as that window opens up, fire a pass across court in a safe fashion because he read the defense and knew how they were going to react to him. Uh, it's kind of a, and I hate to even do this because I'm not trying to make comparisons, but it's sort of like a Chris Paul-esque quality where you have to watch every play, not just highlights to sort of like see how he read the defense doing this, and so therefore he did that and it created this opportunity. Uh, there are a lot of missed shots that came with with that, even if he created an opportunity for his teammates. So that, that explains the turnovers, but he is a, uh, a nice passer. Like I said, not overly explosive, still developing his handle. Um, but in terms for the Pistons, 
like some lazy analysts have said, well, they have Killian Hayes, so therefore they don't need another point guard. That creates a logjam. Quite the contrary. Again, not a natural point guard. He can play with a natural point guard like a Killian Hayes. Killian Hayes is also 6'5". So you can do an on-ball, off-ball thing between them. And if Killian Hayes develops a jump shot, then you become really scary. And I think he he fits in perfectly with a Sadiq Bey, who is a who is a very promising 3 and D guy who can kind of sit in the corner. Cade will find him. Isaiah Stewart, uh, same thing, developing a shot. Cade uh, will be able to put these guys in good position. But he doesn't have to be the primary ball handler because you have Killian Hayes. You can feed off that. He can learn a lot, a lot from Jeremy Grant. I think he fits in seamlessly with the Detroit Pistons. And so if you hear it, so if you hear people call him a point guard and think that the Killian Hayes thing is a mismatch and they don't know what they're talking about, they're just using very surface-level analysis. And if they talk about the turnovers, we've already addressed that. Uh, I, I think he's long, which is what Troy Weaver has emphasized with the kind of guys that he wants. And he wants high-end competitors. That's exactly why they picked Isaiah Stewart. Uh, Cade fits that to a T. I think everything that Troy has shown us that he wants and uh, a core member of his basketball team, Cade has. So to me, there's, there's you know, Green and Mobley are also fine prospects, even Suggs. But to me, for the Pistons, there's not much. There should, there's not much of a discussion in terms of who I think they should take. I think they should take Kay Cunningham. You lucked out on the lottery a little bit uh, for the first time, and basically in in franchise history, you take the best player. Even people who will critique Kay Cunningham, I haven't really seen anybody say that he's not the best prospect in this draft. They might say he doesn't have the highest upside, but overall, he's he's a consensus top prospect in this draft I think he is a home run I think there is a zero percent bust rate with Cade Cunningham not to say that he could just not reach his potential but at the very least you're going to get a 6'8 guy who can shoot who can pass who will play hard and people who do that in the NBA don't bust they may not reach their potential but they don't bust and so I and and he's got all-star all-NBA potential we've seen in the NBA that you don't have to be the best athlete in order to get your shot if you can get your spot Luka Doncic uh Nikola Jokic are perfect examples of that you don't have to be the best athlete but if you know the game if you know how the pieces work then you can find your shot and you can be a high-end player so that is my Kate Cunningham scouting report I tweeted out today if you go to my Twitter I'm at Kieran underscore Steckley the game-winning play he had when Oklahoma State played Kansas, uh, where he blocked a shot, saved it from going out of bounds in the final seconds, and one-handed passed it up the court that created the game-sealing bucket. Uh, that's Kate Cunningham in a nutshell, and it had nothing to do with his actual offensive skill. So I encourage you to go watch that play. This guy would fit like a glove in Detroit with Troy Weaver's vision, with Dwayne Casey's coaching, with the veteran leadership of a Jeremy Grant, and with the young nucleus that were brought in this year. So I think I think it's a slam dunk. I think it's one of the best things that happened to the Pistons organization in a very long time. So uh, Cody, you also watched him. You also are, as much as you like to joke about, you don't want to watch the lottery. You want to watch 
you know the, the, the you know you want to watch Matt Manning pitch. Uh, you're also a basketball guy at heart. So what did what is your scouting report for Kate Cunningham? Why are we talking about the NBA <laughs> on this podcast? Come on, we need to talk about baseball. We need to talk about Zach Short's. Uh, you know, two-hit game at shortstop, baby. That's what the people of Detroit need to be excited about. Now, I joke about all this, and I, I don't know. It did kind of strike a chord because, you know, when the Pistons win the lottery, everyone's excited about the NBA. Everyone's excited about something that's not an actual game, and everyone's overhyping a player who I like, who made it very, very fun to follow my alma mater this year, but who I think has a somewhat limited NBA ceiling. Um Part of that is like we were talking about with Daz Cameron and Akil Badu, like expectations. Well, the expectations that come with being 1-1, that come with Cade's supposed to be the savior of Detroit, it's easy for people to, you know, expect LeBron James or Magic Johnson. And I don't think that's what Cade Cunningham is. I think Cade is a, I think 0% bust rate is accurate. I think he uh, has an incredibly high floor. But this is a 6'8 guy who doesn't really play above the rim, who's not as explosive or as athletic as I would like. Uh, His ball handling leaves a lot to be desired. I think that's where a lot of the turnovers come from, a negative assist-to-turnover ratio in college. I think a lot of times when the Oklahoma State offense was running at its most efficient, Cade Cunningham was playing off the ball and Isaac Likely was handling the point. I think there there were times in the season where that was the best setup for Oklahoma State. He doesn't have a glaring hole in his game. He's, a, he's an adequate defender, if not a, a good defender. Um, the shooting is is huge and makes him a much more likable NBA prospect. Uh, but I don't think he's a natural point guard. I think when you talk superstar player, there is something intangible that he's about the most passive superstar I've ever watched play basketball. There were times he did take over the game, especially late in the season for Oklahoma State. But there were times where I wanted him to just take charge a little more. Or there were times where he would be just not- noticeably absent in the first half of games, scoring zero points, two points in the first half. That just happened a little too often. If you look at the numbers, the averages, look, he was he was big player of the year. He's an incredible player. But I think this guy is a lot less LeBron and a lot more Brandon Roy. Brandon Roy was a three-time All-Star before injuries cut his career short. He's a very good player. Um, you know, could score 20 points a game. I look at his averages. I think I could see similar lines for Cade, maybe a couple more of assists. Going to be a really good player, a great guy to build around. Uh, will bring plenty of value to the Detroit Pistons. But I think we just got to temper expectations here. I think Cade is going to be a victim of his own expectations because people are going to expect him to average 30 points a game and be this takeover player. And when that's not really his mold, if you've actually sat down and watch a lot of Kate Cunningham play basketball. So that's kind of my take. You know, I kind of joke about being a Cade hater. I'm not. I like the guy. He's from my alma mater. It'd be awesome to have him in Detroit. Uh, I think I'm just a hater of overblown expectations as much as anything. I think that was always the case with Cade a little bit, and I think it's getting heightened now that he is the presumptive one well, pick. Basketball's a hype game, man. It's, it's it. Why isn't baseball a hype game? Why aren't we hyping Zach Short, baby? Why are we not getting excited over who the Tigers are going to take at three? Why Why is baseball not a hype game? Let's get hyped about baseball. Hey, get your get your homies in the uh, get 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 good friends with the marketing department of the Tigers and uh, and get them to just put Akil Badu posters all over the skyline, of Detroit, and I think that would that would go a long way. That's what we need. 
That's what we need. Yeah, so so we don't we don't have to do a huge Cade discussion. I just kind of want to give my spiel and and let Cody say his piece because obviously we are not a Pistons podcast. James has a nice Pistons podcast, the Bun and Cardigan Show, um, that has a similar uh, a similar style to what we do. Whereas you have the professional journalist and then. Uh, more of a uh, more of a fan sort of like hashing out things and you get the highs and the lows of that so it's a good show um, I like ours better Cody but that's just me being biased well I hope so I like our sport better I should I should qualify I don't hate basketball I love college basketball college basketball is probably overall my second favorite sport the NBA in recent years I love the NBA growing up not as much recently but if I could cover, uh, another professional sport, it would be the NBA. So I should probably say that in case I ever end up becoming an NBA team. I don't actually hate basketball. All right. Well, we'll, we'll... And shout out to my man, Trey Young, who I covered at the University of Oklahoma. Guy's yeah. balling out. People like to cast him as a villain. Uh, he's one of the most entertaining athletes I've ever covered. Yeah. Trey Young. I did not like Trey Young because of the intangible things that I like Kate Cunningham for. I think intangibles he was lacking there. But. He's shown a tremendous, even this season, like people were talking about how like in film rooms, people, his teammates were yelling at him and all that stuff, but he has turned a corner. I love watching him play. I think it's, uh, I, I think he's great for the game of basketball. So hope everybody is safe in Detroit this weekend and take Cody's advice to heart. Don't drive through floods. Uh, you, you think you can make it and it's, it's, it's not a great feeling when you don't and it's a huge headache and so i hope everybody is safe and secure and takes cody's advice to heart like i said so we will be back next week seeing how some of these young guys uh how these young guys perform we'll talk a little bit more about some of the stars in the minors did a little dylan dingler love there but we'll we'll go a little bit more in depth in there and we'll talk about the draft a little bit more because it'll be right around the corner and until then Please subscribe to The Athletic so you can read all of Cody's excellent work. And you can follow him on Twitter at Cody Stavenhagen. I am at Kieran underscore Steckley. The pod page is at Turn Corner Pod. So for Cody Stavenhagen, I am Kieran Steckley. Thank you for listening.